They're coming for those who don't know. This is a way that we sponsor a young man from Haiti. His name is Peterson, and uh, this helps cover some of his basic necessities. Hey, you two rock. All right. Uh, that might be it. You, oh, wait, here's another. Perfect. Thank you kindly. All right, you guys go ahead and go with Mr. Nathan. Okay, Malia and Kylie and Silas aren't coming today? Okay, thank you for letting me know. <laughs> I tell you what, I'll go visit them later today, okay? You want me to pass the jar around? JJ's going to walk around with the jar. <laughs> Cody, you want to walk around? All right, just look for anybody waving money at you. You can have them put it in there. <laughs> uh, as Cody is walking around, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And also, if it requires a page turn, stick your other finger in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Today we move from uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, which is one of the more challenging texts in Scripture. It's one of the ones that's been hotly debated over the last 1900 years. We move into a portion of Scripture that is a little more straightforward. It's a little more easily swallowable, and it's uh, super practical. Today, like we did on November 1st and November 8th of last year, we revisit the theme of church leadership. Now, even with a seemingly easier text to preach on, I still recognize the need to come before God and ask His guidance. So let's uh, let's go ahead and pray before we tackle this portion. Thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, again for giving us your word. Uh, We've already heard from the Gideons the power that it has, and we ask, Lord, that that same power would be felt today as we study. Lord, help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, April 1st, 2006, I was officially hired here at First Church. Now, before that, I had had several conversations with Pastor Dwight, uh, one-on-one. And if you remember Pastor Dwight, a conversation wasn't short. So, it was probably weeks of conversations that we had together. A couple times, I sat down with him, with Bruce Palmer, and with Wayne Gander. You guys remember them? And at some point in that, that process, I sat down both individually and with Abby and I, with the pastor's cabinet and with the board of directors. Now in that process, I shared with them uh, what I sensed was my calling to ministry. You know, my desire or perceived desire to lead in the church, and they got to hear from me my experience that I had. Now, the local church leadership knew that uh, a calling like that was a good calling. They could point to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 as proof of that. Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. So it was good for me to desire that position. Now, having had all these conversations, the local First Church leadership didn't hesitate to welcome me into the, the ordination process, with the first stage being the LMC, the local ministerial candidate. That's where the local church... In our polity, they, they help decide and they help discern with the person whether or not their calling that they've sensed is accurate. Well, it didn't take long, and it's a good thing, for them to discern that the calling was, was accurate. It was confirmed. Now, annual conference was two months later. By the time annual conference rolled around, Pastor Dwight had thought he had had all the necessary conversations to move me from the local ministerial candidate part to the conference ministerial part. That's the next stage. Two months later, by the end of annual conference, all the appointments had been read. The elders, uh, the CMCs, the LMCs, they were all said out loud. 
and my name was not there. It was evident that I was not going to move from LMC to CMC. And for years, we thought that somebody had just dropped the ball. We thought that because Dwight had left on sabbatical, maybe a, a note that was somewhere, an email that was somewhere, just got missed. And we thought, oh, okay, well, it happened the following year. But we had wondered, why not that year? Fast forward a decade. My wife now heads up a team that oversees the ordination vetting process in our denomination, uh, in our conference. Tim Scully sits on the regional board for that same group, and I've had an opportunity to sit in on a lot of interviews for potential candidates. Some have been really, really good, obviously called, and, uh, and it would seem like it'd be a quick process for them, but it took a while. Others, there was some hesitations, and it took a while with them. I've come to realize that maybe I did not fall through the cracks in 2006. Maybe somebody, in fact, I'm pretty convinced that somebody somewhere thought back to a a short line that the Apostle Paul told his young apprentice, Timothy. In chapter 5, verse 22, Paul told him, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands in Scripture often denotes the stamp of approval for leadership. We see this with Moses when he passed on leadership to Joshua. You can just listen to Joshua chapter, or Numbers chapter 27, verse 18 and 19. The Lord replied, Take Joshua, son of Nun, who has the Spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. Present him to Eleazar the priest before the whole community, and publicly commission him to lead the people. In verse 22 of the same chapter, we see Moses doing that. It says, So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He presented Joshua to Eleazar the priest in the whole community. Moses laid hands on him and commissioned him to lead the people just as the Lord had commanded. Laying on of hands, a commissioning for leadership. Now we also see this taking place in the New Testament. In the early church, it happened pretty soon that there was some rub, some disgruntled between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, or the Jewish believers on both accounts. Seven men were set aside to lead in a very specific way in a food distribution program, and their setting aside was confirmed by the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 6, verse 6. These seven men presented to the apostles, were presented to the apostles, who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Now, even Paul did this to Timothy. We read this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Paul tells Timothy, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Now, Paul in our text today says, Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Or in the New Living Translation, it says, Never be in a hurry to appoint a church leader. Never be in a hurry to appoint a church leader. Looking back at my ordination process, I believe this lack of hurry is what was taking place. In fact, I know it's what takes place today. So Paul says, don't rush. Now we could ask the question, why? Why not? I mean, if you've got somebody who is obviously called, who's obviously gifted, and who is saying, I want to help lead God's people, why not quickly put your stamp of approval on them? Well, In our text today, Paul gives us two very good reasons to wait. First, this could come as a surprise to a lot of people, even people who lead in the church are human. There's a few of you giggling. 
Okay? Even people who desire to lead in the church come with their issues. They come with their junk, their messes. They're human like the rest of us. And those messes, the goods and the bads, cannot all come out over a couple of cups of coffee in the interview at Starbucks. It takes time for these things to come to light. Paul knew this, and that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, in a section on leadership, Paul writes this. He says, Remember, the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. Good deeds and bad deeds will come to light. That being the case, we need to not rush appointing leaders. Jesus' brother James said in James chapter 3, verse 1, he said, those who teach, those who lead will be judged more strictly. So before we appoint, before we elect, before we hire, we need to give the time needed to let the, both the good and the bad deeds come to light. Here at First Church, in the last 10 years, we have been successful in waiting to appoint people to leadership. We have also failed miserably in the same way. We've had some people who we have had no clue about some of the stuff they came into leadership with because it didn't come out over cups of coffee. And we've had others who we've had no clue would be phenomenal leaders, highly utilized people who were ripe for church leadership. So we've done good and we've done bad to Paul's encouragement to wait. Bottom line, the good and the bad will come out. Now, the second good reason Paul tells us to wait, to be in no rush to appoint church leaders, is that church mess always gets out. Church mess always gets out. Even the things sworn to secrecy and behind closed doors board meetings eventually leak out. And when it does, it hurts. It hurts everybody inside the church and outside the church. That's why Paul gives us the second bit of counsel about waiting. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, 20, 21 to 22, Paul says, Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This serves as a strong warning to others. Now I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. And here's our line, verse 22. Never be in a hurry to appoint a church leader. Do not share in their sins and keep yourself pure. Church mess gets out. Now, as I read these five verses, I hear two things. First, I hear that we really need to be cautious before making accusations of anybody, but especially a church leader. Paul defers back to the Old Testament for this. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it writes, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul knew, we know, that one person's simple accusation can destroy a leader's credibility for the rest of their career, even if it's a false accusation. So we need to be cautious to make sure there are multiple witnesses. Now the second thing I see in these verses, 19 to 22, is the fact that even leaders, even leaders serving in the church, mess up. 
They drop the ball. They sin. And it gets out there. When they do mess up, they need to own it. They need to be held responsible, accountable for it. Reprimand them in front of the church, Paul says. For this will set an example. If we rush a church leadership appointment, overlooking certain red flags, maybe because, well, as he warned against favoritism, maybe because that's our favorite candidate. We really like them. They're a good friend of ours. If we rush this appointment, and then not too long down the road, we have to publicly reprimand them in front of the church, that hurts everyone involved, inside and outside the church. People outside of the church, they'll get wind of this. They'll have more ammo to throw at the church, more sticks to say, why would we want to join them? They can't, they're leaders, look at them, they can't do, you fill in the blank. Within the last year, our conference, the River Conference, welcomed a former fallen ministry leader into its fold. This leader was a mega church pastor who had a very public, very national moral failure. It was a super painful experience for him personally, for his family, for the church he pastored, and for the Big C Church. Nationwide news. There was people throwing sticks, people accusing the church of this and that. It was not good. Several years have passed. This person has done the heart work. There's been emotional, spiritual, physical conditions being examined, and a God who gives grace to all, even public ministry fallen leaders. Because of this, our conference has restored this person, this healed pastor, and given them a platform to serve again. It hasn't been a smooth transition for everybody in our conference. Some still don't want this person to be part of us. Personally, I'm thrilled by it because it shows we believe in a God who heals and restores. Church mess gets out and it hurts. So Paul says, never be in a hurry to appoint a church leader. Why not? The good, the bad, and the ugly will eventually come to light. And when it does, if a leader has to be publicly reprimanded, it's painful. So if we're not to rush, What are we to do? Simple. We examine. We examine. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In our local church, we have an unwritten rule that somebody needs to be part of us for a year before they're nominated for a leadership position. In that year, we get to know them, they get to know us. On a denominational level, it's even larger. It used to be that a candidate uh, going for ordination, once they got CMC'd, would serve under an ordained elder for three years before becoming eligible to be ordained. That's the system I entered ordained ministry in. Now, the system has been revamped in recent years, But even under this new process, depending on the readiness, the history, the coursework, the experience, this process still takes anywhere from two to four years, two to five years. They have this time so that the people can be closely examined, their heads, their hearts, their hands. Now, if you're interested in knowing what the denomination looks for, you can come and talk to me. You can come and talk to Abby. She'll know. More than likely, both of us will point you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because in this, Paul gives us a, this is what we're looking for. 
And I'm going to read it in at least two different translations so we can hear it differently. First, in the English Standard, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 12, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with, a, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. And if they prove themselves blameless, they can serve. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be a husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that this was a pretty straightforward text. Do you see it? Pretty straightforward. I mean, you could very easily wait to ordain, to hire a church staff, to, to put somebody on uh, the board or the pastor's cabinet until you've been, had the time to look at these 12 verses and say, yes, this person meets these qualifications. Let's hear it again in the message translation. Eugene Peterson writes, If anyone wants to provide leadership in the church, good. But there are preconditions. A leader must be well thought of. Committed to his wife, cool and collected, accessible and hospitable. He must know what he's talking about, not be overfond of wine, not pushy but gentle, not thin-skinned, not money-hungry. He must handle his own affairs well, attentive to his own children and having their respect. For if someone is unable to handle their own affairs, how can they take care of God's church? He must not be a new believer, lest the position go to his head and the devil trip him up. Outsiders must think well of him, or the devil will figure out a way to lure him into his trap. Verse 8. The same goes for those who want to be servants in the church. Serious, not deceitful, not too free with the bottle, not in it for what they can get out of it. They must be reverent before the mystery of faith, not using their position to try to run things. Let them prove themselves first. If they show they can do it, take them on. No exceptions are to be made for women. Same qualifications. Serious, dependable, not sharp-tongued, not over-fond of wine. Servants in the church are to be committed to their spouses, attentive to their own children, and diligent in looking after their own affairs. Are you seeing how straightforward this is? I don't even have to, to go through it word by word. If you want a word by word, go back and listen to November 1st and November 8th online, okay? because we look at almost all of these words in there. All we've got to do is read this and let the Word of God speak. Paul says, examine your leadership and use these as criteria. 
Now, this may not be an exhaustive list, but it's a great place to start. Don't rush to appoint a leader. Now, after you've done your due diligence, your full and lengthy examination, then, by God's grace, you'll have a candidate who will produce much fruit. We see this in 1 Timothy 3, 13. Paul says, Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Public praise and respect, that's what will happen. But more importantly, a growing faith from the leader. We all want to follow somebody whose faith is growing, right? That's what Paul says when you do your due diligence. Now, before wrapping up, I want to show you two quick things, other things that you should do after you do hire or elect or appoint a well-examined candidate. First, pay them well. For... <laughs> I did not preach this text in our budgeting time. Just saying. I'm, I'm going with Paul here, okay? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, or given double honor, a lot of your translations will say, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, Jesus actually says those who work deserve their pay. Ministry has struggles enough as it is. Paul knew this. So I think what he's saying is this. Look, church, don't make your leaders worry about finances by not paying them enough. Don't have them sitting in a pastoral counseling meeting looking at their watch thinking, is this going to finish in time for me to get to my next job so I can punch in, so I can make enough money to put the bread on the table to feed my family and all those guests I'm supposed to like having in my home? Paul says pay them well. Secondly, once you appoint an elder, Paul says take a personal interest in them. Take a personal interest in them. Verse 23 of chapter 5. Paul tells Timothy, don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. We've already seen Paul saying, look, leaders shouldn't be gluttonous drunkards. So that's not what he's saying. What I see Paul saying here is Paul knew Timothy on a personal level enough to know he was having some intestinal issues and a little bit of wine every now and again would help him. So he took a personal interest in Timothy. On a side note, I've had stomach issues now for about four months, and not one of you has told me to drink more wine. <laughs> Thank you. Wrong denomination, my bad. Verse 23 shows me that Paul says, take a deep personal commitment to the people you hire. Um, back to my stomach thing, you guys have. I'm not saying you haven't. I've had a lot of people deeply concerned, and thank you for that. Let's wrap things up. We've been looking at Paul's encouragement not to rush appointing a church leader. We've seen reasons not to rush. And we've looked at a list of ways we can examine the potential leaders. Now, it could be very easy for many of us sitting in here who have never sensed the call to vocational ministry, who have never said, I want to serve in the church. It could be easy for us to take a, a passage like this and think, you know what, it doesn't apply to us. But listen to what a current theologian says on this text. 
He says, we should note that this is not only of interest to those who are called to be office holders or those who want to keep check on them. The reason they must keep to these standards is because God longs to see all his children like this. The leaders must, as it were, be on the leading edge of this new humanity which the church is supposed to be. Any ordinary Christian who thinks they can leave the practice of real holiness to the professionals is heading for disaster. God wants all his people to embody the life of the new creation which has begun in Jesus and is available to each one of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in our text today, what I hear Paul saying is don't rush to appoint a leader. Make sure they can fit 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. That's what Paul says. I say, don't rush to publicly or privately claim you are a follower of Christ. Don't do that publicly unless you are willing to say you are passionately pursuing being able to fit the description as found in 1 Timothy 3. I'm not saying you need to be perfect. But imagine what the watching world would say if they saw everybody in the church seeking to live out 1 Timothy 3. I was appointed, hired, ordained to do pastoral ministry. This text, it applies to me. This text also applies to you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for times in Scripture where it's straightforward. Thank you for times where we can read it, uh, where we can have a checklist of being able to say, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm doing all right at this, but I need to work on this, this, and this. Lord, I thank you for opportunities to lead. Personally, I thank you for the role I have here with this body. I am daily humbled by your willingness to trust me to help care for this flock. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the staff that's here, uh, for Tim, for Heather, for Orville, for Bill. I thank you for their leadership. Lord, I thank you for the pastor's cabinet and for the board of directors. I thank you for their willingness to step into roles to help lead this flock of people. God, I pray that you would help each of us as leaders, Lord, but more importantly, as people claiming to follow Christ. I pray that you would help us pursue this life of holiness that Paul talks about here in 1 Timothy 3. God, guide us in this. If there's areas that we need to grow in, Show us, and then help us be willing to grow. God, ultimately, we cannot grow without your Spirit doing the work. So we pray that he would help us. And we pray, Lord, that at the end of the day, we would be more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.